This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mania. And I'm Luc Elvide Meble. And our topic this week is... We're bringing back the mini topics. Oh. Okay, but first I have some follow-up. Uh, so Sony announced this week the CUH ZVR2 PlayStation VR headset. And this is a revised version of the original PlayStation VR hardware that includes a new external processing unit that makes one of the big complaints about last year's unit... Uh, go away, which is this one has HDR pass through uh, because Ooh. people who bought a PlayStation 4 Pro last year uh, and also had PSVR like those rich people, um, <laughs> they realized that they couldn't actually hook up their VR headset to their PS4 and leave it plugged in all of the time because if they also wanted HDR output, uh, that wasn't compatible. Uh, so this new external processing unit supports HDR pass through, which is great. And it also has thinner, but incompatible cables because it's Sony. They do this every fucking time. Uh, so this is coming out October 14th in Japan. And unfortunately there is no news as to whether or not this hardware will ever come to North America. So sorry, North America. <laughs> wow. That, okay. That's strange news, but we'll see. Uh, one of my, uh, pet theories about like why this is the case is that PlayStation VR has been completely out of stock in Japan since its launch. Uh, like it's about as bad as the switch is right now. Um, so I think they're probably just trying to make a skew that's only for Japan right now, just to be able to satisfy the needs of the Japanese market. And then they'll launch it once those needs have been quelled. Okay. So it will be kind of a special edition right now for Japan. And then once Japan is okay and they get more stocks, they will just bring this edition to everybody. I think so. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, next up is some mobile payments news, of course. Uh, of course. There is some big news in Japanese mobile payments this week. Well, rather, it's... Uh, but sorry, before you continue, you, you misintroduced this topic. It's the topic that never dies. Yes, TM. it's true. Uh, we actually do have some new listeners that have joined us recently. And if you haven't heard our episode on mobile payments, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done on this show. In fact, it's my favorite episode I've ever done. You should go listen to it because it's part of the show's deep lore uh, that we bring it up almost every episode and you would really learn a lot of things if you listen to it uh, and funnily enough be before you continue funnily enough it is your first episode because yes, I did it the is. first one so you did the second one so just to say Yannick's episodes are going downhill since then it's true I feel bad every week that I can't beat that episode <laughs> it's the first one oh uh, come on I'm just uh, joking but going back to the news uh, there is some big speculative news in the Japanese mobile payment market. Uh, we've talked a lot about Mobile Suica, which is the leader right now for smartphone mobile payments in Japan because it belongs to Japan Rail East. Uh, yeah, JR East. And uh, they have decided to interoperate with all of the other uh, pa uh, rail pass uh, services that there are in Japan on NFC and RFID and all that stuff. Uh, Pasmo is the other competitor to Suica that exists in Tokyo, which is interoperable with Suica in most cases, except from what I can understand, uh, if you have a commuter pass, which doesn't involve JR at all, but only involves like other rail companies, then you don't have a choice but to get your rail pass on Pasmo, and then you can't use it with Mobile Suica because it's not a Suica card technically, it's a Pasmo card. And 12 years after the introduction of Mobile Suica, Pasmo woke up and said, hey, maybe we should do this thing so that people can use their phones. Uh, and now the trademark for Mobile Pasmo was made public last week. 
so now everyone knows that mobile passmo is a thing but that is all we know about it right now so everybody is speculating what does this mean is this going to be a, su- a success is it too late to the party if you wait 12 years after the introduction of mobile suica to make a move in the market uh, I have no answers to any of these questions, but it could be a big move in the industry, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it soon. Uh, do you have any follow-up yourself? I I do. Okay, go uh, and do that first. Uh, in episode 72, I spoke about app iOS 10 APIs that developer could adopt in their app if they move their development target to iOS 10. Uh, and one of them was SK Store Review Controller. And it is a new control introduced in iOS 10.3. Uh, while talking about it, uh, Yannick, you were wondering where was the global setting that Apple mentioned in all of their release uh, to developers, all of the statements to developers, to fully disable this new prompt. Uh, Sandy, while talking about it, we did a, a real-time follow-up to find it during the show, but we did not find it. And now that iOS 11 has officially shipped, I can report that this setting is now in this latest OS. You can find it in settings.app under the iTunes and App Store section. And I would like to thank our good friend Stephen Fry for the reminder. Yes, that Mr. Fry. Uh, I will put a link in his uh, to his tweet in the show notes and he was the one that uh, mentioned that he will disable that now that this setting exists. So if you want to do the same, you know now where to go. Yeah, it's funny because I had memories of having seen that a slider in the app store preferences and i had no idea why i remembered that if it wasn't there and i guess someone posted a screenshot from the beta or something during the summer and i remembered that so that's probably why i was confused on that episode exactly next item in my follow-up list and the uh, last one in the last episode number 73 yannick discussed uh, the gay car the k cars to make some uh, analogy with the low end of certain markets uh, for a curious listener that might want to enjoy the driving experience they can provide, I would like to report that they can be found for cheap. A good example of that is I found uh, one, a uh, 91 on the beat. And they can wa- it is one of the one you like. It is, yes. And just to tempt you a bit, one in the US was sold earlier today on Bring a Trailer for around 5000 US dollars. Yeah, that's about the going price these days. And especially in Canada, since... Not Quebec, but the rest of Canada is luckier than us. Uh, there's a less restriction on write-and-drive cars, so they can be imported, imported, and also you can import them from earlier than 25 years. Uh, for the rest of Canada, it's 15, so you can get uh, like newer models imported here, and you can daily drive them legally. And by the way, I'm already sorry for the time you will lose navigating the current ads on Bring a Trailer. Please don't do like me and don't follow the Twitter account. It's kind of bad for the wallet. Wow. I haven't done anything stupid, but it, it is tempting sometimes when you see the types of car people post on Bring a Trailer. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, last thing before we go to the main topics, uh, we have an administrative note, and that is that we are going to be skipping a week uh, because we are going to be super busy on the week that the next episode was supposed to come out. And we're going to be doing the next episode, which is our anniversary episode, on October 26th, uh, which is going to be the date we're recording. Uh, And the reason I'm talking about the recording is because we're going to be doing it live on Twitch, because it's a Limipo Plays episode. And this week, we are going to reveal the big game. Oh, we are? I thought we would keep that as a surprise, but okay, I don't mind. Uh, Well, now that you've said it, I can't say it. So, sorry, you're going to have to watch it. 
Oh wow! And then people will blame me that I, we teased. It's it? your oh, fault. Okay, that's okay. I'll take the blame and the emails. But yeah, so we'll be live on Twitch on October twenty sixth, and the released episode will be on Sunday, October twenty ninth. Cool. So let's move on to our mini topics. Yes. So I'll start with the first mini topics, and we'll do a typical uh, round robin like I love to do with those. And the topic number one will cover. I would say both of my mini topics this week are kind of like follow up plus plus. Uh, so the first one will cover two past episodes. The first one, episode 62 named The Car Season, was about the different motorsport activities you can do with your own car. And the other car, uh, the other episode is another car episode, episode 68, named On the Sidewalk at 300 kilometers per hour, because Yannick is dangerous with car in his dreams, was about car buying tips and discussing the purchase of my new car, the 2017 Ford Focus RS. So I've decided to combine the follow-up of these two episodes regarding cars and do a mini topic regarding the three months ownership of my new car and also to review my uh, this, this summer season of motorsport activities. To be honest, the my, summer sport, my motorsport uh, season was shorter than I expected it to be. The week we released episode 62, I attended a driving academy focused on track driving. And sadly, I have to report that this is my only big activity uh, this year. And that was in April, just to give you an idea. May and June were fully booked on car shopping. Most of my time, my free time was reserved for that. And then at the end of June, I sold my Ford Fiesta ST. And July was the break-in month for the new car. And I'll come back on about the breaking month. Um, hopefully, I was able to attend one lap in nine at uh, the end of July. And the reason why is I made sure that I would go through the number of kilometers that Ford requires as a break-in period uh, in that month to make sure that at the end of July, where like I would say maybe like two uh, forty to fifty percent of the Quebec population are off for summer vacation and this is the only time in the year where my brother can join me at track events mainly because of schedule conflicts it's hard for him to either comes during those lapping nights during the week but because he's a construction worker he has those uh week off in the end of july so he always we always took that since i started to do uh, lapping events nearly three years ago he always take this opportunity to come enjoy that with me and uh a bit like May and June, I was not car shopping in August, but August flew away uh, and September arrived and I kind of woke up and realized that this summer was nearly over. And I was really over in September because it started to be cold quite early. And then we got some warm, uh, super odd day at the end of September where I was able to do a couple of lipid nights bef- before one of the racetrack outside of Montreal will close its lipping club for the cold seasons. Um, also, the big purchase meant that I had to kind of slow this season down a bit early. And right now, I'm already preparing for the new one. And mainly by preparing the f- new car for it. Like I mentioned in episode uh, 62, the Ford Fiesta ST had a slightly modified brake system. And the goal of this modification was to really uh, be able to go to track events in nearly any kind of weather. 
my summers are always quite busy and as you uh, can see right now and can hear uh, they are uh, really busy with a lot of stuff that I'm doing so sometimes when I can find a spot whether it's raining or super hot I would like to go uh, to those lapping events and sometimes since some of them are booked months in advance they will happen show a shine or rain so you need to have your car prepared for that because you might have spent a couple of hundred dollars to reserve your place on the track so my modification is not the modification i do usually on the car on my cars were not to make them more powerful but they're just to handle the type of driving that lapping events will endure the car so i drove my fits more fortress i see under the rain and also in temperature that were nearly like 40 degrees celsius which could be uh, not problematic, but ta uh, overtaxing on the engine, especially on the braking system. But with the light modification I did to the braking system, it was nearly really overtaxed. It's always in its kind of performance range. And if I could see some signs of overtaxing, I would not even push it too far, even if I knew that the system could still handle it to a certain level. So I do plan to do the same modification on the RS, but next year because i still need my wallet still need to recover from the big purchase <laughs> um as you might expect i won't also talk about other types of activities because in episode 62 i was mentioning all the different different types of activities you could do and i was splitting them into three categories there was the first one which was activity that i i know people enjoy but it's not personally in my taste there's the one that was already doing mainly lapping and track events and there was a future section of other activities i would like to do with my car but sadly because my schedule was quite tight these activities were not added to this uh, to this year's schedules hopefully they will be added next year so now let's talk about the car itself so after nearly three months of ownership the mileage clocks in at nearly uh, 40 700 kilometers kilometers and in these nearly 5000 kilometers i did different types of driving from being on the track to city city driving while not uh, forgetting a uh, long drives between cities and the main result of that was july i had to do at least 1600 to 2000 kilometers to kind of complete my break-in period before going to the racetrack um, I still knew that the first time I would go to a track, I wouldn't go at 10 tenths all the time because, first of all, new car, but also it's still the new engine. Uh, so I still like obviously the car manufacturer always suggests a break-in period, so I would like take that into consideration. And these days with new car, uh, the breaking period is nearly just like two different types of driving, not like do like 2,000 kilometers of only highway. Uh, driving at the same constant rpm and stuff like that they want you to uh, make sure that the engine can rev a little bit like stay low and then maintain some kind of speed uh, they want to make sure uh, by doing so you can make sure that if there's any defects in the engine they will just happen early sadly it might be uh, problematic but at least if there's a defect it happens early and then you can go to dealership and fix it and it did, before you ask it didn't happen with a car Everything is fine. I'm trying to touch wood, but there's no wood on my table. So, but no, just kidding aside, the car is uh, doing fine. Uh, up and knowing that if you've 
looked at picture of my car, it shows that it's not really like a daily driver car. Like it's a sports car and it's not really the most comfortable daily driver on the market. Though I was slightly surprised by the suspension in normal mode. I was thinking that it would be uh, way harsher compared to my Fiesta ST. Though after nearly 5,000 kilometers, it seems fine for me. On the other side, friends and family that got rides in the car kind of reported a small change, but nothing too bad. Like every time I was mentioning, you know what? I was expecting like something uh, harsher suspension than the Fiesta ST. And they were like, it's a bit more sporty, bit harsher, but I think it's still like for normal people, it's still like, yes, it, it fits in the category of sports suspension. Whereas for me, it's like part of the compromise I did while buying this car. I don't mind the uh, like downsize or the, the downgrade in comfort because this car can be uh, really nice on the track. Something I still need to get used to it is fuel economy. Uh, for a subcompact car, uh, the Fiesta ST was quite thirsty. I was kind of averaging the, between the summer and the winter, like 8 to 9 liters per 100 kilometer, which is not really bad for a sport car itself, but for a subcompact car, it's quite thirsty. But on the other side, this is something I knew, but I still need to get used to it. Uh, but the focus is another game. It, it does, it, it's not t- too bad compared to its competition. But compared to my previous car, it is about three to four liters more per, uh, on average, uh, per 100 kilometers. So these days, after three months, I average around like 12, five to 13, five liters per 100 kilometers. Um, this is quite the difference, but st- again, still worth with the car and not too much outside of the range comparing it with its competition. Like I mentioned above, uh, I attended a couple of light, light, lapping nights after buying the car and uh, the stock braking system surprised me. It was able to handle those uh, few, I would say, about um, 10 to 12 a session of 20 minutes. Obviously, usually they're split in two or three days. I would say three or four days uh, for this. Uh, and it was able to handle those uh, events not better than I expected, but I was quite surprised because I remember with the Fiesta ST when I had the normal pads and normal disc, it uh, got exhausted quite uh, fast compared to what I've experienced with the Focus RS. Yes, the car is a bit bigger, so there's bigger brakes, maybe a bit better pads. Uh, and in the some few cases where it showed sign of starting to be overtaxed, uh, I was able to realize it and also start to slow down a bit, keep a like more like normal pace to help the system cool down. And obviously, even in September, where usually we never get temperature around like 30 to 40 degrees, that happened two weeks ago. And this is a rare occurrence for Montreal at this time of the year. But since I had a slow season, I was like, I need to still go to the track and was super uh surprised by that because uh, I even even on that night where it was still around like 637 it was still 35 40 degrees celsius the car was uh, still going fine no sign of overeating same things for the brake and I was gladly surprised
Uh, last but not least, yes, here in Canada, you might know us for winter. So winter is coming. I'm no winter person, but every year I get a new car. It's always the same. I'm super excited to drive it in the snow and feel all it handles. <laughs> Let's not say I won't do stupid stuff with it. Of course, I won't do stupid stuff. But once in a while, a small like like drift in the snow or a small donut in the snow always makes me smile. And that's mostly it uh, with the car update. Uh, I would say the last thing I would mention is CarPlay is just amazing in that <laughs> car. And uh, I did mention in the past having some issues with the uh, Sync 2 system that was in the Fiesta, the one that it was Microsoft-based. The Sync 3 system is now QNX-based. And I would see that it is excuse me, way faster than the Microsoft-based one. And even when it crashed, because I would assume it crashed at some point, come on. <laughs> but even when that happened it was really like quick to go back on its feet like it kind of do a quick reboot and it takes like 15 20 seconds whereas when the microsoft one it would took a minute or two so can you imagine driving down the street car is going fine but the info system is like on a, rand- a random like fm station and you're like oh my god at least you can control the volume at least while it reboots but still uh on the CarPlay side, uh, CarPlay is amazing. Uh, we talked a lot in this uh, podcast about CarPlay. There are still a couple of downsides with it. I think the main one as a user of it is no navigation map uh, and no navigation apps. Uh, sometimes since I need to go in rush hour because of those slapping nights, uh, I need to. I will gladly use Waze compared to Apple Maps, but Apple Maps quite surprised me. I was able to run both at the same time on my phone. So um, I was able to compare the ETAs and the routes they would give me. And Apple Maps surprised me quite to say the least. Uh, sometimes it's a bit slow to react. So I would say like uh, Waze would understand that there's traffic, uh, traffic incoming and it would reroute me to maybe a faster route. But for the time to be a bit stuck and then get rerouted, Apple Mambo took that time to catch up and then give me the same route without like changing routes uh, while that happened. It's not because I changed route that Apple Maps is really calculating. It's just that it takes maybe five minutes more while being in slowish traffic to find to find the uh, faster route and suggest it to you. So still in the end, I would really like to have navi- like third-party navigation app in CarPlay. Hopefully this is coming next year. But after, yes, exactly. After what? Nearly four years of CarPlay? Uh, the fact that Apple hasn't added them, I think it's, it kind of shows that it's a conscious decision and not something they are uh, kind of ignoring. Okay, Yannick, I think it's your turn for your first small topic. All right. Uh, so this is something that you might not think is a small topic, but it is. And it's Apple's 2017 OS updates, namely iOS 11, watchOS 4, and High Sierra. Um, Before you start, when you told me that you want to talk about that, I think it, it told me first yesterday, and I was like, okay, I think he will, wants to put that in his list of topics he wants to talk about. And then when I ask you today again, what will be the mini topic? It was part of this. I was like, how can it be a mini topic? I had no notes yesterday when I told you that, so that's why. <laughs> In ah, fact, I had no that... notes until 10 minutes before the show started. I was just going to improv the whole thing, but... No, that's okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> waiting for to see uh, what you'll have to say uh, without notes about that. Well, now now I have notes for both my topics, so it's good, oh, but okay. whatever. That's good. Uh, so yeah, so I upgraded to iOS 11 and watchOS 4 uh, 
right around the time that the GMs were leaked. Uh, actually, I only got the iOS 11 GM, and then I waited for the actual release of uh, WatchOS 4 because I'm no longer an, an registered Apple developer, so I can't actually go download uh, the GMs and stuff. So when they got leaked, I was like, hmm, I'll go find a trustworthy source, and it helped that the URL was directly on Apple servers, and I downloaded it, installed it, and everything was fine, sort of. Uh, then there were the issues, and the issues are... Well, plentiful. Uh, one of the big ones I've been seeing a lot of people talk about today on Twitter is bad battery life. Uh, iOS 11 battery life has been rather terrible for me, and I'm hoping it's not going to be a repeat of what happened with my iPhone 6, where suddenly a new OS comes out and my phone is worthless. Uh, so I'm hoping it's going to be better than that. Uh, I've also had bad battery life on WatchOS 4. Um, but I realized that sort of like previous versions of watchOS, if you just repair the watch, magically the battery life goes back to normal, which is kind of a stupid thing uh, to happen every year. I wish they would just find a way to do the updates on the watch without also negatively influencing the battery life every single major version. Uh, it really pisses me off. Um, I've been having other issues like Bluetooth audio has become completely unreliable in iOS 11. And this is a very bad thing considering that Apple is getting rid of the headphone jack and telling people to move on with Bluetooth audio. Last year, their promise was we made Bluetooth audio reliable. Well, maybe you shouldn't just screw the entire stack when you do the next major version. And that would be a good idea. So I have never had pairing issues on iOS at all. I am getting regular pairing issues every single day. I have to reboot my devices. And this is not just one device, it's both my iPhone and my iPad. I have to reboot them every day because my uh, my iPad and iPhone forget that my W1 devices have a W1 chip and they get very confused when trying to pair with them. And it just says, like, no, I'm just not going to pair. Uh, it's super strange. It's really weird. Now, fingers crossed, uh, I haven't had issues since iOS 11.0.2 came out, so I'm hoping this has been fixed. But it is a terrible first impression for something that shipped... Uh, with the iPhone 8, which also doesn't have a headphone jack. Like, I am not the kind of person to say, to harp on the fact that they got rid of the headphone jack because having owned W1 devices myself, I believe in Apple's vision for getting rid of the headphone jack. I think it's great. Don't fuck with it, though. That is, like, big no-no. Don't fuck with it. Keep it reliable. And it's funny because this episode started with me bitching about iOS 8 and its Bluetooth stack being fucked up again. Yeah. And, like, this is the year where they had to not fuck it up because their devices are now reliant on Bluetooth audio for the most part for everything. And, like, they're really hyping the earpods. Like, the earpods are a much bigger deal in Apple's product lineup this year than they seem to be last year. Because now they have, like, this complete thing with air power where the phone, the watch, and the earpods have this continuum of... There's like this continuum of products that work well together. And on top of that, you can all charge them on the same charger, which is genius when you think about it from an integration point of view. But if the Bluetooth audio stack is unreliable, that entire promise sort of crumbles. And I really don't want that to happen. Uh, aside from Bluetooth audio, I've had other issues, of course. Uh, so there's a new feature in iOS 11 where if you take a screenshot, uh, a little tiny screenshot shows up in the bottom uh, left-hand corner of the screen, and you can tap it, and you can annotate it in real time, or you can crop it and then share it out or save it to photos. Uh, well, it turns out that quite reliably, and this still happens on 11.0.2 for me, uh, quite reliably, like, after a few screenshots that just stops working. The screenshots are still taken. However, there's no flash when you take the screenshots, which makes you think 
I didn't take a screenshot. And then you go to the photos app and you have like 15 screenshots because you took it 15 times. Uh, you don't have the, the flash. You don't have the little thumbnail in the corner that you can tap on to do stuff. Even if it does show up, though, that is also unreliable as well. So I have cropped images in the annotation thing and shared them out. And it shared the full image, not the cropped image, which good thing it wasn't like a naked selfie or something like that, because that would have been very bad. Uh, and like, it's not just when you share out. It's also when you decide to dismiss it manually and say share to photos. So basically, I have no trust in this feature now. Like, it has proven over and over again that I can't crop stuff reliably and trust that it's going to be shared with the proper cropped version. It doesn't even show up half the time on my device until I reboot. Like, this is a trash feature, uh, and I would just rather continue using another program to annotate my stuff and know that it works 100% of the time than rely on this trash feature that might not pop up and could potentially reveal information that I don't want revealed to the rest of the world. So, bad point there. Uh, yesterday, we found out about APFS on High Sierra, where if you make an encrypted container and set a password on it, which you should because it's an encrypted container, uh, instead of showing the password hint as the password hint, it shows your password as the password hint, which is mind-blowing fuck-up. Like, it's clear that someone, like, mistyped a variable in disk utility, but the fact that they didn't catch this is very alarming, and in general, like, in the Mac community, there is this big distress about every year how disk utility keeps getting worse and worse and worse, and it's a super important utility to the... Like, for people who actually know what their computers are doing, this is a utility that is responsible for basically all of the data on your machine. And if you can't trust it, that's really worrisome. Um, so where am I going with all of this? Well, when High Sierra was announced, a lot of people had it in their mind that this was going to be finally a Mac version that is the next Snow Leopard. And there was like almost equal attention given to the fact that there are basically no user facing features in High Sierra. You can ask like all the Mac users in the world what the user facing features in Sierra are, and they're going to be speechless for about three and a half minutes because there's nothing in this OS version. In fact, a lot of people are considering not upgrading because there is basically no reason to upgrade to High Sierra other than potentially get a new file system with dubious benefits right now. Like I understand the benefits of APFS going forward. And I am also a believer of more modern file systems. Like, thank you, John Syracuse for banging that drum for so many years. Uh, but like right now there, there is effectively no benefit to moving to APFS. It's like, just like to say that you've done it. Um, I guess the fast copy thing is the only like real advantage I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, so Seeing, like, all of these little fuck-ups everywhere in all of these software releases that are coordinated has basically drained my confidence that Apple is able to release a technically ambitious overhaul of their operating system at the same time that they are improving its reliability. It happened once in Snow Leopard, and it never happened again. All the other versions where they have claimed publicly that this is just small tweaks under the hood and refinements and all that stuff, they have continually been worse and worse and worse, and... I am just very worried about this trend. I think, like, we've been talking for years on this podcast, like you stated, like, since the very beginning, we've been talking about software reliability from Apple software, and it's just gotten embarrassing because for a long time, I said that Apple software, it just worked, and, like, a lot of people laugh at that, like, it just works, but no, really, like... <laughs> 10 years ago, Apple stuff just worked and it was magical. And that was why we were all into Apple stuff. 
And now, like, we've been arguing about, like, the decisions they're doing in hardware, the decisions, like, go back to the episode about uh, Steve Jobs and Scott Forstall. Like, I don't know if I can really trust Apple's judgment anymore. And, like, these issues in software aren't helping the case here. And it seems to be, like, every year there's this, this kind of stuff. And this year it's particularly bad. Like, oh, one thing I forgot to mention... I think I deleted the line for it in my notes is uh, one of the big features of iOS 11 is super good. Well, super good, super powerful, not necessarily good. Uh, iPad multitasking. And there's a lot of really cool stuff you can do in iOS 11 with multitasking. However, it's all reliant on gestures. And I have found that once every three days, multitasking gestures stop working on my iPad. Like I can't do edge swipes at all. They just stop responding. I have to reboot my iPad. Like a lot of this stuff, what makes it so infuriating is all of this stuff is stuff that requires a reboot of my iPad. And before iOS 11, I literally can't tell you when the last time I rebooted my iPad was. Like probably when I installed iOS 10 on it. Like that was the last time I rebooted my iPad for real. And now it's been like every one to three days, depending if I have the Bluetooth audio issues or not. It's maddening. And... I really wish they would get their act together. However, I know how software is made, so it's probably not going to happen. But it really sucks as a user to be having these issues when they are claiming that this is like a huge improvement when really I just feel like reliability has gone down the the toilet. And the crazy part too is everything Yannick mentioned, I don't have any problems like that. The only problem we had when we both updated to iOS 11 is the battery issues. But all of my colleagues and friends that were on the beta told me with iOS 11, it's a bit like with iOS 10. It needs to sync uh, to synchronize and do the AI stuff and core, core ML stuff on your photo library and stuff. And you'll see in the first day or two, it will be slow and you have shit battery life. And that was my experience. I had shit battery life for the first, what, day or two? Maybe at most three days. And then after that, it went back to normal. After uh, At first, I was worried because... As I mentioned a lot in previous episode, I am a heavy uh, Apple Watch user, especially for doing uh, sleep tracking at night. And with the 42 millimeters watch, I was able to just like charge it in the morning and be fine. And for two or three days, I was like, oh my God, is, is really my battery bad on the watch after nearly three years or it's just the OS? And I quite realized that, yes, it was just the OS. So the fact that I have one experience that is... I think similar to a lot of people, and Yannick has a really bad experience because with my new iPad, like I use the multitasking gesture quite frequently too, and never had to reboot it. Like when Yannick told me that he had to reboot it because the swipe gesture wouldn't work, I was like, "What the fuck? What do you mean?" Like I never seen that bug, and the fact that you can talk to friends and colleagues, and they won't have the same experience as you is madding to those users because they feel left out. <laughs> well, I also want to put a big asterisk on this, which is the iPad Pro is my primary computer and like it's not even a joke. It's the only computer I use basically except on the weekends when I'll usually be playing on the PS4 and using my computer at the same time. But otherwise, like the entire rest of the time, I'm on the iPad and people who use the iPad heavily run into way more iPad bugs than people who use it as just a content consumption device or that kind of stuff and i think like heavy ipad users are very very conscious of the issues like in the files app and in all of this stuff that other people like they think it's nice that the feature is there they'll play with it to familiarize themselves with the features and then they'll sort of leave it there and i think like 
I use the file zapper every week because I make fucking videos on my iPad every week. Like I use my iPad for video editing every week and people are like, what the fuck are you doing that for? But like I do it. And that's why I run into a lot more issues than people who are just using it to like watch Netflix and stuff. Oh yeah. And that is quite valid. I'll, I'll be honest here and say like, yes, I do use my iPad quite a lot and it can has also become a kind of primary device outside of work. But I think the only time I used the files app was when I uploaded the episode last time. And it was the first episode on iOS 11. It was nice, like, really to use all of my workflows. Now, I will have to jump between, uh, between like, apps or Dropbox or, like, with needing less oops uh, to do all of the stuff just because of the file app. But that's the only time I use it or when I use uh, Keynote or uh, Numbers. So it's not every day. But it is, uh, I would say, more than a lot of users. And still, you're right. Like The fact that you may run into a lot of bugs and uh, a lot of uh, rough edges, but I can tell you that since iOS 11, I've been using the multitasking feature like every day, multiple times, and was like perfectly fine for me. The only issue I had with it, and I think it was just like trying to understand how that works, is when you want to do the slide over one. I still don't understand how that works. That one, I don't understand how it works. Like, I was like, okay, I know the sidebar, the scroll, like the, the, the second grid of icons to scroll was bad because for, uh, like for people that use it to do like real work, more work than I do on my iPad, it was a pain for them to use uh, those features. And they would, I think these days, will mostly rely on the dock. But where I realize is the main apps I use are in the dock, but sometimes there's one app that I use semi-frequently that I want, and I don't know how to get it in multitasking nowadays because there's no longer this list. Yanid, you did mention to me that uh, you can trigger them, you can, you can trigger Spotlight and then do drag and drop from Spotlight. But can I can't imagine what people can do uh, do when they don't have an external keyboard. Yeah, it's like really fucking it. weird. Like, there's a bunch of really cool stuff you can do with multitasking that only works if you have an external keyboard con- connected to it. And, like, it's cool that people with external keyboards do that, but some of us actually believe that the iPad is a better device if you don't have an external keyboard on it, and some of us are not believers in everything needs to be a laptop to be productive. Like, I just like using it as a tablet because most of the stuff I actually do work on my iPad with doesn't involve typing. Therefore, I have no need for a keyboard, but I'm getting this this experience gimped because I basically can't bring apps that aren't in my dock into the thing. And you can listen to like the latest episode of Cortex where CGP Grey basically gave up and said, okay, I have no apps on my home screen. Everything is in one folder on my dock and boom, I, I can now do everything <laughs> on my iPad, which is not a good answer. Uh, and he's since revised his home screen, of course, but like in the most extreme case, you can do that and it is quite effective. Yeah, I would say I would say that's the only solution right now. Hopefully, this is going to be fixed. And maybe before we go on, I would like to mention that yes, the bug we mentioned in ICR was really bad, and there was another one about the keychain leaking your information, <laughs> and those have been fixed today. So once you hear us bitch about that, there's a supplemental update already out for them for for those two issues, and you should update your Mac on ICR. If you're on ICR already, you should update and install this patch as fast as you can or just stands here dudes actually like i before we go uh i am not the kind of person to tell people to stay back on an old version of the software i think that you should just rip the band-aid off and get used to the new shit as quickly as possible however due to reliability issues alone i would recommend people wait until 
HomePod release to actually update to 11, unless you need to rely on iPad features that work 75% of the time. But yeah. Yeah, you mean uh, HomePod release because you expect uh, <laughs> iOS 11.1 to be released at the same yeah. time. I wonder if it will be 11.1 or 2 because my gut feeling is we'll get 0.1 with the iPhone 10 and we might get the 0.2 just before Christmas. I'm not sure. It might be risky to ship a, a minor release of the OS just before the holiday season. We'll see. Uh, but that could fit what we've seen in the past. Cool. Your next topic. Good. Next topic. And like I mentioned in my other mini topic, it is uh, follow plus plus on another episode. And this episode is episode 58. Passes the fish or bases the fish since I don't know to pronounce how to pronounce base, it seems. And in that episode, I reviewed two gadgets that I recently acquired. And I thought we were doing a long-term update on these two. And the reason why will be jarring in a bit, because there's one major difference between those two. So let's start with the first gadget that was reviewed in this episode, and it was the GoPro. So at that time, the main reason why I decided to buy a GoPro was to use it during my lapping events. I did that uh, previously with uh, somebody else's GoPro. Uh, it was a GoPro Hero 2, and I were quite enjoyed uh, the video outcome of it. So I decided, ah, it would be nice uh, getting GoPro. And like I mentioned, my first mini topic this season ended quite uh, and uh, ended up being shorter than I expected to be. I expected it to be so. Uh, in the end, I did buy the, ca- the camera during Boxing Day last year, and I also knew at that time that it would be used during my Costa Rica trip that happened last January. So, Yannick, I have one question for you that will uh, be kind of the the question for this mini topic. Can you guess when was the last time I used my new GoPro? When you went to Costa Rica. Wow. wow, I'm Yannick. so smart. Exactly, you're so smart. Uh, yes, Yannick is right. <laughs> the last time I used the GoPro was during the Costa Rica trip. It has been stored since then. I think the only other usage it had was Tony did a trip, uh, a winter trip in uh, February. And I think he, yes, he brought it with him just to be kind of a second camera slash uh, video capture device. Um, I did like it. Uh, use I did like the camera in the trip, and like I mentioned in that in that episode, fifty eight was just after we came back from our hiatus, and also uh, I came back from the trip. All of the elements I liked about the GoPro uh, Hero Five still apply to this day. The image quality compared with the size of the camera is great, but in my day to day life, I still end up being using my phone as the camera, whether it's for photos or video. In a way, the camera was great for a trip to Costa Rica where I could bring it with me in the water and the beach and stuff like that where I would be more precious of the phone. But in day-to-day life, the device I have with me is the phone. On the stuff I had issues with or I didn't like, those two still applies. I didn't find any more problems with because I didn't use it much. Battery life is okay, but not great. And you still also need a case to protect it. And that's maybe... Part of the reason why I'm not using it too much at lapping events because previous 
GoPro came with a waterproof case because the camera casing itself wasn't waterproof and it was some thick plastic that also was protection for impact with the camera. With the Eero 5, the camera body itself is waterproof to up to most people's use. I think the, the, the number is 10 meters, but they assume that most people will go in the water 10 meters more than enough. And the problem with this new model resides with the back touchscreen. There's no protection included in the box. Like, they assume that the case is fine. Of course, the lenses uh, on top of the camera can be exchanged because they assume you'll break it at some point. But the touchscreen can be changed easily. And that is just jarring to me. It's, it is the main problem. It is an action camera that sadly at some point will get dinged. And they're expecting us to not ding it on the big glass part in its back. Uh, hopefully, it didn't happen during my trip to Costa Rica. And in the rare, even if the first, the only time I used a GoPro in my car, it was inside, hanging from the sunroof. So if it would fall, it would either fall on me or on the floor. So that wouldn't be that bad. But I would be worried to do that outside of the car where we can get way more nicer shots. So... If I plan to do that next year, I will have to buy a case. And I would say it makes the camera to be to be as bug as it was like its previous generation. And with part of the Rio 5, the main selling point was 4K and it being waterproof and being smaller because it doesn't require a case. Uh, also, with... The reason why I'm talking about the GoPro was that GoPro launched the new uh, Eero 6 Black. <laughs> of course and they it, did. And it kind of reminded me that I had a GoPro, which <laughs> was funny. <laughs> I was like, huh, GoPro is launching a new camera. Huh. I, I have, have one GoPro. of those. <laughs> yeah, I have one of those somewhere, which uh, started to ask me, like, which made me think, like, do I really plan to change this camera to this model? Absolutely not. Come on. Like, I haven't used it that much. And... The other follow-up question regarding that is, do I regret buying one? Ooh. And this is quite hard, to be honest. Because when I used it in a Costa Rica trip, I really enjoyed the photo it gave and all of the functionality I had. So I had quite fun playing with it. And I think it gives me great memories of my trip that I can like cherish uh, for the, the years to come. But at the same time... I might have regret buying the Eero 5 Black, the big model. Maybe the smaller Eero 5 Session would have been a better call. It's smaller, obviously way cheaper. I think, obviously, the geek part of me was like, oh, I need the, the best one, blah, 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 blah. So I hope, like, what I think what will happen is, I think a GoPro is really useful, even if you're not, like, one of the people they put in ads where they always do, like, action-based activities all the time. Yeah, I, I was actually considering maybe picking, picking up a GoPro because one of the things I would like to do next time I go to Japan, and I have not completely planned this out yet, is maybe go bungee jumping. And in that case, Ooh, there is no way in wow. hell I'm actually going to use my phone. <laughs> no, of course. So, like... I could see doing that. On the other hand, like, I think, like, my dad and my brother both have cameras that could possibly work for that scenario that I could borrow. So I wouldn't actually need to buy one, uh, or I could just borrow yours. Uh, but I mean, That's like, true. yeah, it's, I don't really see a market for this. Like, I don't, I don't see it being very worth it to buy one of these unless you are someone who is constantly using them, especially like the big model. Whereas, like, if you just do, 
things very occasionally. Like you almost want a rental service for that where you pay like 60 bucks to someone to say like, okay, I'm going to take a GoPro for the day for this one action thing I'm going to do this year. And then like you get the videos off of it and you're done and you don't have to worry about it. And like, yeah, 60 bucks a day or something or whatever is not a good deal if you're going to be using it like every week this year but if you do like two or three big things a year that you actually want to get footage for it actually works out in your favor so i think that's a good model it, it's funny that you mentioned a rental service because um last no it would be yeah two summer ago no one summer ago so when i borrowed a gopro from one of my friends uh before doing that i was like let's go to one of my uh one of the uh, big uh photo store in town because they have a big uh, rental service. And I went there. I was like, oh, I'm interested by the GoPro to do an event. And, the, and they were like, oh, yeah, we have all of the accessories included in the package. I'm like, do you have the section cup? And they're like, uh, that's the only one not included. <laughs> I'm like, I don't mind paying like 50 bucks to rent it for, I think it was like 50 or 60 bucks for the weekend. Like for the two days. That's actually better than I expected. I have to look at it, but it, it was not that bad. Uh, because I think they would consider the weekend as a weekday. So they had something weird where the weekend was two days, but it's kind of... It's weird because I would charge more on the weekend than on a weekday, but... I I know, I know. But to be honest, I think it was for the weekend, maybe like at most $100. At most. Yeah. With all included, even memory cards. Uh, I think it it came in a big case with a shit ton of accessories. But the only one I didn't, uh, the, the only one I needed was not included. And this one was $35, $40. Yeah. So on the side, I was like, ah, at this point, I'll just find one elsewhere. And that's what, happen- what happened is I bought the suction cup, which now I have with the new Go- for the new GoPro. I used my friend's GoPro and enjoyed it for the day or two I was at this uh, lapping event uh, two, days, two years ago. So in the end, is the Eero 5 Black a bad product? Not at all. It's an amazing camera. I would say it is an amazing camera for people I see in the roller coaster using their phone filming <laughs> themselves. It makes me have a. I think it makes me have an art attack worse than just being it in in the roller coaster. I'm like, oh my god, I'm freaking out for those people using their phone. Also because I'm sitting behind them, so I, <laughs> you I, don't I want a metal phone in your face. Exactly. I feel that I'll receive it like punch in the face with the phone. But at the same time, like, oh my god, this phone will go flying in the air, and then the people will be like, oh my god, you, my phone flew in the air. I'll, I'll bend the roller coaster park, and then I'm like, oh my god, don't use your phone in the. Okay, small rent, but yeah. So the Euro Five Black is not a bad camera at all. I would say that if you have limited users like me, maybe the, this model is not the one you should look at. Maybe the Euro Five Session or even the Session, uh, the normal Session, would be a one to look at cheaper less small less uh i think the main problem with those two that i had was i wanted i wanted it to be kind of a bit future proof i know with 4k you can like crop it a bit and like find the the 1080p frame in it to make uh and it makes it uh, easier at uh, video editing time but in a way if you don't plan to do 4k right now those smaller cameras are really good and if you're planning to buy the big boy model I would say do like what I did. Wait for the holidays. I bought mine during Black Boxing Day. Um, usually, you get a small discount, 
plus usually like best buy we would do like small discount or somewhat the same price but the shit ton of accessories with it so if you're like me and new to the gopro industry you can get a good initial setup for a somewhat reasonable price now let's move to the other gadget that was reviewed part of this episode and it's the beatx oh and on and unlike the gopro i use my beatx daily and that's the main difference between those two <laughs> is gopro use it once beats x i use it the daily the beat the the beats are my daily driver of headphones uh and when i bought it out the airpods were luckily in stock at my local apple store so i was super hesitant i was really in the store looking at them and the apple apple person was like uh so which one do you want to buy i'm like uh and i was really hesitant to buy one or the other but in the end, I decided to give the Beatex a try because I was able to get a good business discount on them, even like super close to launch. And it was crazy. I was like, okay, so Beatex made by Apple, super nice discount, AirPods, no discount. And the guy was like, shrug. <laughs> um, yeah, it was quite funny at the Apple store. Sometimes, uh, it's, not the, it's been a while since we have a business uh, account that at work and it's super funny sometimes when you go there and it's like oh yeah business purchase and i the- i think the reason for it is that technically beats x are labeled as an accessory and business purchases are allowed for all accessories whereas airpods are an apple product in capital letters <laughs> and it doesn't count right but for business for business expenses you can like another expenses but for business accounts you can get discounts on like ipads i some colleagues bought ipad Pro 10.5 recently with a small discount, but not negligible discount. On yeah, but so. can you get a discount on like a Magic Keyboard? Because that's like uh, that, what I see the at the analog being in the system. Oh, I think you should be able. But in the past few years, the discount—I don't know if it's our work account or just the system itself that is changing. But sometimes I get discount on things that in the past I got discount, and in other cases I got the discount in the past, and now it doesn't apply anymore. So. Who knows? But from what we got told by work, you should be able to get discounts on Apple accessories and some third-party accessories, but mainly Apple accessories. Okay, small aside about the Apple Store, but the main reason why I went to with the Beatsex is I knew kind of all of the tech people would get their iPods, and I was quite intrigued by the Beatsex, and with its the concept part gave me uh, kind of all the arguments to try them. Related to that, like with the GoPro, do I do I regret going with the Beats? Not at all. Is there any feature or some feature that I would like to have on the Beats? There's some, and some of them are from the AirPods. So let's go through them. Uh, first of all, it's been a while since I've used uh, in your earphones, and it have been what like six to seven months, uh, a bit more, a bit more or less six months that I have them, and. Sadly, since I bought them, I did have on, sadly, multiple occasions, dirt to go in my ear. And you can imagine that sometimes it is painful and even in some cases, it created a small infection. So not so good. Nothing too bad, but still painful for a few days. Um, And that that was a bit problematic because I never had problems with headphones in the past, especially to have like ear problems. Uh, and especially with air- headphones like the earpod i think in the end it's uh, quite a question of compromise i don't want something big and bulk over uh the ear 
And also, I want something that can mask or cancel ambient noise. And I know that the beat sets do both. So, a strategy I have is I try to disinfect them quite uh, frequently. And uh, make sure to not use the pouch. I think the pouch is not so good. And it, well, you'll see it's a recreating the pouch is shit. Don't use the silicon pouch with it. Uh, battery life is okay. It's eight hours and it's still like keeping up after six months, but it's not really ideal. And this is where I think the AirPods shine, in my opinion. And because of the main usage I have for them is to use them during my commute time and also while I'm coding at work, I'm get also disturbed a lot sometimes at work. So I need to remove them quite often during the day. And what I would like it if the BeatsX would come with a charging case. I would put them in the case to make sure I have enough battery to listen to podcasts during my commute at night. Usually I'm pretty lucky. Uh, when I run out of battery, it's usually a couple of meters away from my apartment. But it did happen that sometimes it was earlier and I forgot to charge. In one particular case, I ran out of my apartment to just catch the bus in the morning and forgot to charge them. So I ran out of battery like five minutes away after I left home. So with a charging case that is always with you, first of all, I could solve the problem of no debris in the in here parts. And also with the uh, added benefit of being fully charged mostly all the time. I understand that at some point you have to charge a case, but the way I see it is if I run out of juice in the case, but the earphones are fully charged, I can still charge them while uh listening to music which it seems that the second you plug them uh, plug the beatsex in the charger they kind of disconnect from your phone i don't know why i don't know if it's a limitation or just something that it misconfigured it's the same way but... with the solo threes that i have oh really yeah so i uh, so you cannot like listen to music while being charged unfortunately not yeah so that's kind of my problem because sometimes it happened today um i knew that the battery was low but i kind of like like went on with the like work day and just forgot to put them on the charger and i was about to leave i still had time so i put it on the charger and fast charging does really work and it really helps in those cases but i was like oh, i want to continue to listen to the podcast i was listening to for the like maybe 30 minutes before i leave off the office and also continue to listen so i had to choose to continue listening to it now and run out of battery and no battery during the commute or just wait and you still have to do those time types of trade-offs and obviously, this update is super timely since Google today released its own pair of earbuds named the Pixel Buds. And those earbuds fixes these exact issues that I have with the BTEX right now. They come with a, it's the same type of in-ear with a cord between both uh, in-ear parts. And they uh, come with a nicer case that is also charging and not this shitty, sticky <laughs> silicone one. It, the, the, I think that part i can say the, where the ptex feed cheap is really its case all of the like the cords between it the battery parts the even the inner parts and the added parts to clip it uh, to your hair they all feel great the plastic is great it's super comfortable but the fucking silicone case is it, it just felt like oh we need to put a case and we kind of forgot to put a <laughs> case after doing all of the accounting stuff so we'll put the cheapest one out there um on the other side, all of positive aspect of them that I covered in episode 58 still applies. Pairing them to new devices is a non-issue. I didn't run into any problem that Henrik mentioned in his uh, Apple OS rent. Uh, I still haven't used them with the watch, but switching from iPhone, iPhone to iPad or even iPhone to the Mac is super simple. 
Uh, also, the Bluetooth range is quite impressive. Sometimes I can like go see a colleague, talk like while on my way to go to his or her office, just continue to listen my, to my stuff, talk with them, do our stuff, and then come back and there's no problem. I would say that the range is about like 10, 15 meters. And in the, in the old office that we are, which like will a big brick wall, it's super impressive that I can still keep this range even because of the cement wall and brick wall. Um, the audio profile of the headphone is more nuanced compared to typical Beats headset. It was a great a part, uh, a lengthy part of my review. And this makes like me mainly a podcast listener quite happy. And after even six months, like it is really nice. And it really more, I think it's really more flexible as headphones compared to traditional uh, Beats headphones. So you can listen to music and also listen to mostly voiced uh, audio uh, media and have a nice mix of good audio voice quality and also cool, a great friends in audio quality in the music. The lightning conveni- connector convenience is just amazing. Being able to bring one cable that charges both my phone, my iPad, and my headphones is just simple and great. That's the thing I'm most jealous of with the Solar 3s because they're micro USB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know what? And I'll end my uh, long-term update on the Beats X. I think being able to charge all of these devices with one port, I guess this is what it feels to be a USB-C user. <laughs> one port lifestyle. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) I knew you wouldn't like that comment. So yeah, in the end, I do love the Beats X. And seriously, the only issue with them is the case. But even ignoring that, it also falls. It it to me, it's a gadget that falls into the Insta Buy category. So I would invite you to go look at them in the Apple Store. And if you're looking for nice pair of Bluetooth in here, I would greatly suggest you to buy them if you don't want the AirPods or if you don't mind the AirPods. Cool. So next topic for you, I think I heard it's some kind of video game you spend a lot of time on it. Well, maybe not as much time as Destiny 1 after all. It's Ooh. Destiny 2. Uh, and I have spent almost more hours on the internet arguing about why I don't like Destiny 2 than I have spent time playing the game. <laughs> I would like to mention that when you tweeted that exact sentence, it made me laugh so much because it's so typically you. Yes. Um, so before we go into it, I should just give a basic overview of what Destiny 1 was for people who don't know what it is. It's a first person shooter by Bungie, the creators of Halo, and it features, uh, it it combines the first person shooter genre with elements of MMORPGs. So the guns you pick up in the game are, uh, belong to you. They go into your inventory and they stick with you and they have attack and defense stats. And in Destiny 1, they had, uh, individual rolls of perks on them. So you could get one that had maybe max stability on it and you would get another gun of the same name. But this one would have, let's say, if you shoot this, there's going to be an explosion when the, uh, bullet hits the target or whatever. And it, there was this entire game revolving around which are the best perks to get. And of course, you could buy certain arrangements of uh, perks that were set by Bungie in the vendors, or you could wait until you get a better roll from getting the item randomly in game rewards elsewhere. Uh, Think a little bit of Diablo-style loot in a first-person shooter if you're familiar with those games. Um, Destiny 2, overall, it is a better game than Destiny 1. Like, I, I can't 
stress this enough. For people who have not played Destiny 1, you will probably love Destiny 2. Uh, it solves all of the big shortcomings of Destiny 1 that made it unappealing to average gamers, which is great. Uh, if you gave up on Destiny 1 because you were frustrated with the game systems, all of the game systems have been refined to such a point that you should not be frustrated with it and you should play this game. And if you are already a fan of Destiny 1, you've already played Destiny 2 and you probably agree with a lot of the things I'm going to say. So, hello. Uh, so, I had uh, I wrote a rather lengthy post on Select Button, which is a forum I go to uh, a couple, maybe last week, maybe a week and a half ago documenting all of the issues I have with the way that the game is designed. I chose two things that I'm going to focus on because I didn't want to take up the whole episode and we're running a little bit long anyway. Uh, so I want to, tack to tackle uh, differences in the progression system and in in-game vendors that really turned me off from Destiny 2. And it, I really don't like that I'm turned off by Destiny 2 because this was a game that I was ready to put hundreds of hours into. But I have maybe played this game for 20 hours and I don't feel like playing it anymore. And that uh, I've spent 960 hours on Destiny 1. So that's how you know I'm not fucking around here. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Does this mean you're looking for a game to spend hours on? Because I have suggestion for no, you. No, I have plenty of games that I have uh, I bought in the... So this is the other thing. I really fucked up this year in games because the first <laughs> half of the year, I only bought games that were either social commentary or are intentionally designed to make you cry. And this is not good for my mental health. Uh, are you talking about Persona? Because that sounds to me like Persona 5. Well, Persona 5 is uh, social commentary. Uh, Nier Automata is... On the human, uh, the state of being human and what it means to be human and what it means to go to war and stuff like this, which is also super depressing. And then there's like, I, when I was in Japan, I bought White Album 2, which is a dating sim where basically everything goes wrong all the time. Uh, <laughs> and friends recommended that I play this because I don't know why they want to see me suffer. Uh, so. <laughs> People are creating weird sims these days. Uh, it's an entire genre, dude. Um, I know, I know, I know. But, still. but yeah, so this is how I spent the first half of the year. And I was like, I'm going to have a great end of the year because Destiny 2 is going to come out and it's going to be great. And it was great for the first 20 hours. And then I got bored of it real fast. So let's go into why I got bored with it. Uh, I will have to explain, of course, Destiny 1 systems because a lot of this is, well, this differs from how Destiny 1 was and it no longer caters to the way that I play the game. And therefore you need to understand that difference in order for the, any of this to make sense. So starting off with progression. In Destiny 1, there was two ways you could actually measure your progression as a player. So there was player level and light level. I'm going to explain light level first because you can't really understand player level without knowing what light level is. Light level is the average of the attack and defense stats for all of the gear you have currently equipped. It is the most important stat in the game. In fact, it's the only stat that matters in the game. Player level is just something that limits the speed at which you can acquire light level. Uh, because each piece of gear that drops has a minimum required level to equip it. Uh, and every 10 light, uh, light levels or so, uh, the level becomes one higher for the cap, uh, for the minimum required level up to 200. Uh, because level 20 is the cap in general. Uh, so that's basically how that system worked. And once you beat the campaign, there were a bunch of endgame activities and endgame activities required a high level, light level to participate in. And in Destiny 1, unfortunately, one of the shortcomings of that game is there were very limited ways to acquire gear that would boost your current light level. Generally, what this meant is you would go into a strike playlist 
and you would play strikes over and over and over again. And if you were at the start of Destiny 1, there were six strikes. If you were at the end of Destiny 1, there were maybe 30 strikes, so it wasn't as bad. And of those 30 strikes, some of them had multiple variations that you could randomly drop on. So sometimes the enemies would be from one race or another. Uh, little tricks like that. Um, but the problem is, because there were so few activities, it felt very repetitive to get to end game level, where you could actually have the best activities in the game. And it was very time-consuming. So it was repetitive and time-consuming, which a lot of people get immediately turned off by. And the reason this is a problem is because the raid in Destiny, uh, every expansion except for one, has a raid. And this is one of the best cooperative multiplayer experiences there has ever been in video games, period. Except for Crota's End, which is shit, but that's an ex that doesn't mean anything to you if you haven't played Destiny 1. Uh, and... The raid has a very high light requirement because it's the hardest activity in the game. And it's supposed to be like, you beat the raid, you feel like a champion, and now you've done the hardest thing in Destiny. Uh, one of the big issues Bungie had with Destiny 1 when they looked at the stats for the game is how low the percentage of the player base had actually played the raid. Because they spent all of this time, there's like a dedicated raid team, and this is one of the most secretive places in Bungie because... There are multiple encounters in the raid and each have their little puzzles and stuff and there are secrets hidden around the raid and they don't want people to figure them out from leaks and stuff. They want people to figure them out from playing the raid themselves. Uh, and usually to beat a raid for the first time, uh, if you watch it live on Twitch as soon as the raid goes live, it takes six to eight to nine hours in that range for the first team to actually figure out and beat the entire raid. Uh, on normal mode. And on hard mode, it's usually less than that because there are only little tweaks that are added on top of the base mechanics. Um, so for Destiny 2, what they said is, we want more people to experience the raid because we believe it's some of the best content in the game. And it's true. In fact, I would even argue that if you wanted to buy Destiny 1, uh, it would be worth the price of admission just to play the raid. And yes, it would be a long time investment, but the payout you get from playing these raids, which are fantastic makes up for all the time you've spent grinding to get up to raid level. Although, if you want to play Destiny 1 now, like they basically hand you over all of the gear because there's no point in playing Destiny 1 anymore because everyone's playing Destiny 2. Uh, and so, the way they streamlined this is, if you play through the entire main story of Destiny 2, you will be at player level 20 when you finish the thing. And that is the player level cap for the game. And then if you want to get to the minimum level to actually play endgame content, which is 260, uh, it's 260 power because for story reasons, there is no more light in Destiny 2. It's power uh, because the very first thing that happens in the game is some big bad dude comes and sucks away the thing that gives Guardians light. So there you go. Story reason. Uh, but you can play any activity in Destiny 2 for a few hours, and you will be ready to play the raid. And this is very different from what happened basically last year, where me and my friends would get in a party of three, we would go into one strike that could be abused to get a lot of loot, and we would play the same strike over and over and over again for like six hours, and that was how we were raid ready on day one for Wrath of the Machine last year. Um... And there are lots of people who do this kind of thing because usually if you can find the most optimal way to get raid ready in the shortest period of time as possible, you're going to do it because you want to do the raid on day one and be part of the excitement and all that stuff. Um, however, one of the sort of end results of the changes to the progression system is Bungie ended up designing an entire game saying not enough people are experiencing our content because it takes too, too much time to get to the content, the, to the best content. So we're just going to make it so that 
everyone can play the game for 20 hours and experience everything in the game. Can you see what the issue with this design is? People only play 20 hours of the game and they feel that they enjoyed the game. Well, it's not just they feel that they enjoyed the game. They wanted everyone to be able to experience all of the content in the game in 20 hours. That means you play for 20 hours and you have run out of shit to do. And because they have streamlined the systems so much, there are too much. even. Yeah, there are much less systems to actually have depth and stuff to do with after you're done those 20 hours. And that means that hardcore players sort of get screwed like to a certain degree, like yes, Destiny 2 is a great game that feels good to play and the guns feel good and they always felt good in Destiny 1 and that was part of the reason that kept me playing. But I'm going to get into the second part, which is an example of one of those systems that got too streamlined that really screwed with the way that I was enjoying playing Destiny. Um, one of the end results, however, of these changes is if you go look on PSN, you can go see what percentage of players have trophies that say, I completed the raid. And more than 10% of people have completed the raid. So technically, it's a success. Like, they have gotten more people to play the raid. And there's also really cool stuff. Like, uh, one of the things that you need for the raid is you need six people to play with, uh, uh, a team of six people to go in. And obviously, if you're a solo player or you only have one other pl friend that's playing Destiny, you can't really play a raid so they added this thing called guided games where you can say okay i am a team of one or two and i want to team up with a clan of people who have been playing the raid for a while and can guide me through this raid so i can at least experience it once and that is a really cool system and i'm really happy that they added that to the game uh, because if they had just put random matchmaking like they do in multiplayer and strikes there are so many mechanics in the raid that having limited communication options isn't good for those encounters. Like the new raid is almost entirely based around strong team communication. And if you're being matched up with completely random people who have no coherence in as a team, it's not going to work. And they basically decided, okay, if you're one or two, we'll put you with a group of friends that have done this raid before. And then you can all go in together and feel more like you're part of a team than six random people have been gathered together to do this raid and now have to beat each other up to actually complete the raid. So the system I want to criticize is the vendor system. So I'm going to explain what it was in Destiny 1 first. In Destiny 1, there were faction vendors uh, and they would take a currency called legendary marks. Uh, you could use legendary marks to buy weapons and armor, uh, typically very close to the minimum light level required to play endgame content. Uh, however, in later versions, that was not quite the case. And this only reflects how it was at the end of Destiny 1. In early Destiny 1, it was even worse of a system, where, which had a horrible grind. And before the first expansion came out, I never even got a piece of purple legendary gear because it was so hard to get that gear. And I felt like I was really terrible because I basically couldn't get this gear. Uh, and they streamlined the systems throughout the expansions, which was very good. But this reflects the end of Destiny 1. Um, you could only get a set amount of marks a week, but there were rotating daily and weekly activities you could play to acquire them. And these were any kind of activity. It could be... Uh, it could be like a daily story mission. It could be a uh, daily PVP playlist. So today you have to play one game of control and win and you get legendary marks and stuff like that. So it was really cool. And there were vendors, right? So those vendors in total had about 60 weapons and 35 armor pieces per character class that you could buy whenever you felt like spending your legendary marks. And in late year three, this was even better because uh, near the end of Destiny 1, they basically said, well, 
all of your gear is going to be deleted when Destiny 2 comes out anyway. So let's have fun and just rotate every week there are new perks on the gun. So you had a new reason to go check the store every week to go see what guns there were and if it was p- possibly an improvement on what you already had. And you could go spend your legendary marks on that. And it was really fun because it brought life to the game that wasn't there really because before they did that, the rules were set for the entire expansion at the start of the expansion. And then you had basically six months where you had to wait for them to rotate the rolls. And if you were a very hardcore player, you probably had bought most of the weapons that you were interested in within the first few weeks anyway. Um, now what was cool about the vendors is it gave everybody a baseline from which they could rely on. Uh, you would get gear randomly dropping throughout the game, but if you just had shitty luck or if, you were getting bad rolls on your weapons, even though they were the weapons you wanted. You could always rely on going to the vendors, and they almost always had something that was good in every class of weapon that you could want. They had generally good armor in every type of armor you would want. And maybe it wasn't the fashion you wanted. Like, maybe you absolutely want completely matching a set of new monarchy gear. I totally understand, because I had one on my warlock, and it was dope as shit. Uh, but you could at least rely that as a baseline from which you could play the game. And then as time went on, you would gradually get those pieces randomly anyway. Um, and what was really cool is because you had the shop that you could go to and buy arbitrary items of your choice, uh, you could plan out specific configurations of armor and weapons that would go well together, either practically uh, because the perks would complement each other and do something really cool or for fashion. Like, uh, like I said, uh, by the end of destiny one, uh, because I had spent 900 hours in the game, I had a Titan with a complete set of future war called weapons and armor. I had a hunter with complete set of dead orbit, uh, armor and weapons. And I had a warlock with new monarchy armor and weapons. And those are the three factions in the game. So I basically had a full, uh, uh, winter 20, uh, 2017, uh, fall lineup of clothing for my guardians all three of my characters and i could just be the most fashionable dude in the tower which was really cool and it also had good perks on it because i had spent so so much time accumulating the items with the perks that i wanted on them and what i realized by playing destiny 2 is that that system was so integral to one of the ways that i played destiny 1 because one of the ways that i kept destiny 1 fresh is that Every couple months, I would go to the vendors and see what they had and say, oh, I never tried this combination of this gun and this gun and this armor. I have so many legendary marks because I play the game all the time anyway. I'm just going to buy all of this stuff and go try it out. And every month in Destiny, there's a monthly competitive event called Iron Banner where everybody goes out and they play against each other in this big sort of event that gives you high-level loot and all that stuff, and it's really great. And in Destiny 2, the system is basically completely changed to the point where none of that is possible. So in Destiny 2, pretty much anything you do on a specific planet gives you a token for that planet's vendor. After you have 25 tokens, you can trade in those tokens at the planetary vendor to get a random item from that planet's loot table at a higher power level than the one you already have, up to 280, and then afterwards it starts lowering because... They don't want you to reach the cap, which is 300, too fast. But for most of the game, you're getting higher level stuff than what you already have. Um, And 
this is one of the big changes that actually makes progression much faster once you beat the campaign. Because as you play the campaign, you are going to accumulate this huge stash of tokens that you can turn in at the end of the campaign because there's a level requirement to actually be able to turn in those tokens. And once you turn in those tokens, you're going to get a jump from maybe you finish the campaign at 200 light. And if you turn in all those tokens, you're at 230, 240 light. And the minimum is 260, which is... It, you just sped up that entire gap really quickly, which is really cool. But it also means that now those vendors only give you a chance at a random item. You can no longer buy specific items. And that means you no longer have that baseline that all players can expect to rely on. So if you really need a long-range weapon, because for a certain encounter in the raid, you would actually benefit from having a long-range weapon but everything you get is a short-range weapon like a sidearm that does no damage at all at range, you can't really do anything about it. Uh, there's nothing you can do in the game to say, please give me a long-range weapon. You just have to wait until the game gives you one, which sucks. Uh, it also means that the entire creative aspect of the game, which I was mentioning, is completely lost, because now you are entirely reliant on randomness, and that means that the combinations that are going to be available to you are never... Here is the possibility from everything I can buy in the store. No, now the possibilities are what did I get to drop randomly in the game? And a lot of the times you're actually incentivized to destroy those uh, those items that you get randomly in the game because they're not useful to you right now. And if you destroy them, you get resources which you can exchange for exotic weapons, which are much rarer and you probably want to build your collection of those exotic weapons. Um, however, exotics by themselves are not necessarily going to help you get through the game because you can only have one exotic weapon and one exotic armor piece on at a time. So you can't just buy exotics for every slot. That doesn't work. Um, and there's one other big limitation, which is sort of understated in all of this, which is I said that when you complete activities on a planet, you get a token that drops for that planet. So on my Titan right now, I have a mostly complete set of Nessus armor. So this is a planet in uh, Destiny 2 called Nessus. I'm missing two pieces to complete my armor set. If I want those pieces to drop, I have to spend all of my time playing on Nessus because it's the only place that gives me Nessus tokens. Problem is, I have completed everything you can do on Nessus. I can continue to play random events that happen every 15 minutes around the thing, but that's going to give me one token. There's nothing else I can do to get those items. I need 25 tokens. So 20 times, 25 times 15 minutes gives you an idea of how much time it would take to get one piece of Nessus stuff to drop. And it's not necessarily Nessus armor. It could be a Nessus weapon. And it might be a duplicate of an armor piece that I already have. And now you sort of start to see why I have lost all motivations. Like, I was really into the idea at the end of Destiny 1 to com to complete my sets of armor and get like an entire complete fashion thing that I can put on my dude. And it was also a good set of perks for the weapons that I had. Now, basically, weapon uh, armor perks are gone because they basically decided, no, we just want armor to be cosmetic now because it was adding too much complexity. So basically that aspect of customization is gone. Weapons do not have random perks. They always have set perks, which is good and bad, uh, but I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole other 15-minute block of stuff. Uh, and you're reliant on randomness for everything. So all of the places in Destiny that I had to put that creative energy has sort of been sucked away, and now 
I feel like I'm just wearing whatever random shit that drops into my account, and there's nothing I can really do other than play hundreds of hours of not fun content because there's less content in Destiny 2 than there is in the entirety of the first three years of Destiny 1. Uh, there is not much I can do that feels like I'm actually achieving anything towards completing my sets of armor or building the builds that I want to build. And therefore, this game is completely boring to me once I've actually completed the 20 hours that Bungie designed this experience around. And the other sort of issue around this is Destiny sort of has this external image of being sort of a lifestyle-encompassing game. Like, I said I spent 960 hours in Destiny 1, and you can basically, like, read into that and say... Yeah, you must not have had much of a life for the past three years. And it, that's true, it, by the it, way. That's it, true. It's true to begin with, but it's also sort of it, like 960 hours is not actually that much considering I've also played. Uh, excuse me. Whoa, no, no, whoa, but whoa, whoa. You... considering I've also played other games during that period, uh, I was also out of the country for a month during that. Uh, well, out of the country for three months during that three year uh, span. Actually, it's closer to four months. Um, so I could have been spending even more time than what I spent. And I feel like, especially in the last year, I've been rather reasonable, which is such a stupid thing to say. Uh, but like, I really like this game and it gave me ways to feel like it was still being exciting 960 hours into the game. Uh, and now it feels completely nuts that this game that has been that has its public image as being a lifestyle encompassing game is something you can finish in 20 hours and not feel like you're actually missing anything out. It feels like it's betraying the expectations that a lot of the hardcore players have had. And I don't necessarily mean that this is a bad thing for the game. Like I said, it's a great game for people who actually only have the time to play a 20 hour game. Like those people are going me? to like me, like you would love destiny too. I'm pretty sure if you played it. Huh? But for me who spent 960 hours on destiny one, all of the substance that kept me going for those 960 hours has been sucked out of the game. And now I just, I don't even want to boot up my PS4. Like, I feel bored playing Destiny 2 in a way that I have never felt bored playing Destiny 1. And that is why I am not playing Destiny 1 and why my clan, who partially disagrees with me, seems to think that I'm crazy uh, because they didn't appreciate the same aspects of Destiny than me, which is perfectly fine. Um... But, like, if you go look at streamers and YouTubers who also basically play Destiny as a full-time job, they are super frustrated with this game because it's their job to play this game. And they could basically play 20 hours the first week and they were done with it. And you, uh, it's very strange because the entire game was, uh, the game's weapons were balanced around multiplayer this time around, which was not something that really happened uh, in original Destiny. And... Lots of concessions were made to the quality of the game outside of multiplayer to make better multiplayer. And now the hardcore multiplayer players who were really excited about Destiny 2 being a better multiplayer game are bored with Destiny 2. And they were never bored with Destiny 1. Like, it's really strange to see, like, which people are really enjoying Destiny 2 and which people are really turned off by Destiny 2. Because the most hardcore, I feel, got really screwed by this release. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, and it's rare that you actually see that. And I think it's probably the best business move for Bungie, really, because I think there are probably way more people who want to play a 20-hour game than people who want to have their life taken over and never see their wife and children ever again. Uh, 
but for me it doesn't really do the job which means i now have plenty of time to go play other games which is great because i have a huge backlog of stuff unfortunately most of it is super depressing uh but that is sort of where i am with destiny 2 i greatly recommend it to anyone who only has 20 hours to spend because you will love this game uh but if you were looking for a hobby basically for the next three years at least right now destiny 2 is not that uh Again, there's a new expansion coming out in December. Maybe it'll be better. I don't know. Uh, but generally, uh, Bungie's direction for the past year and a half or so has been to lean more heavily towards making things more accessible to the casual players. And I don't think they'll back away from that uh, because the game has been getting more casual friendly. And I just wish that they could keep it being casual friendly while not sucking out the substance for hardcore players as well. So that's what I had to say about Destiny 2. Good. Yeah. Right on the dot. 90 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good. And it, uh, I'm quite surprised, to be honest, that you uh, won't be able to enjoy Destiny 2, but it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Maybe you will buy a Switch. Nope. Maybe. Nope. Still, it gives me hope. Not this year. Uh, we'll see. Okay, so if you want the show notes for this episode, you can go find all of the fabulous show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 74, or you can find all of our episodes, including the fabulous episode about mobile payments, at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the podcast on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find myself on Twitter at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Lucadivier at Lucanoche, L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in three weeks. We'll see you in three weeks.